you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you for these scriptures laid before us. What we're asking is that in these moments you would give us focus, the ability to see clearly what's in front of us, not just to have answers or to acquire knowledge, but to have our lives changed. So I pray that each of us would be engaged in this time, that this would not be a passive experience for my brothers and sisters and friends who are here, but that this would be our active engagement of our whole person as we labor to submit to the, to the goodness of your word. And I pray that as a result of engaging in that work in these moments, that we would be a people more firmly rooted in our truest identity, who we are as men and women made in your image. Would you, would you reveal that to us in fresh and full ways today? We thank you in advance for what you intend for us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we... We started a new series last week, if you were with us, studying the first 11 chapters of Genesis, exploring origins, the origins of all that, that exists and how we find our place within those origins. As, as we were saying last week, as we understand where we've come from and how and why things have come to be the way that they are, we, we understand how to more fruitfully and faithfully operate in the current state of affairs. And this morning, we, we're going to zoom in. Last week, we, we looked at the creation of all things throughout chapter 1, but we're slowing down and we're zooming in in the final verses of chapter 1, talking about anthropology, about humanity. What does it mean to be human? And in these verses, we're talking about our origins and what it looked like for God to create us. And, and in many ways, this is a really critical text for us to slow down and pay attention to because we live in a moment where there is a dense fog of anthropological confusion. The struggle to answer the question, who am I? In our current cultural moment, that question has become more and more clouded and confusing. And it's, it's into that context where I'm really grateful for, I'm going to throw one more big word at you. I promise I won't do this all the time. So we got, we got anthropological confusion, okay? But I praise God in the midst of that confusion that we have a revelatory epistemology. Yeah? Everybody got that one? <laughs> epistemology is the study of what we can know and how we can know it. As Christians... We don't believe that our epistemology is formed by just our best thoughts, our reason, the gray matter between our ears working overtime to make sense of everything. We have a revelatory epistemology. We think what we can know about the world at its most truest sense has been revealed to us lovingly and mercifully by a God who is speaking. This is incredibly helpful, particularly where there is a dense fog of confusion because revelatory epistemology with great clarity cuts through fogs of confusion. It provides clarity where we felt like, ah, I've been spun around a little bit and I'm struggling to lay hold of clearly what, what I can say about mankind, what I can say about what it means to be human. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thankful today that because of this text, we're going to be the sort of people that can answer with some clarity 
And like we've, we've got a solid anchor in the midst of the storm, we can answer the question, who am I? And answering that question effectively changes everything. I've shared with you before the, the joy I had in reading the Wing Feather Saga to my older boys. Maybe you've heard me mention these books. It's a series of books written by Andrew Peterson. And, and it's the story that I, I loved reading to my, my little boys because it's, it's a story of identity. It's two brothers and a sister that are born in a little, the Glipwood Forest, and they think their lives are relatively unimportant. Just a little family living in this little woods, and, and then they become present to the fact that they are actually, they're royalty from a distant land. And you get to track with them as they go on this journey, and they realize that as royalty from this distant land, now that there's this massive war that is taking place, and as royalty, they have a role to play in the the war that is unfolding with evil forces at work in this world in which they inhabit. And the beauty of reading these stories with my little boys is that as they walk from book to book and adventure to adventure, they start to believe their own identity. They start to realize, oh, I am royal and dignified and I have a role to play in the world and they start to enter into areas and conversations and difficult situations with a different sort of air about them because they know that there is dignity and value and worth in being a part of their family this is what Genesis 1 26 through 31 does to the heart that makes sense of it it is a radical and a profound word about your value and your dignity and your worth. And when can, we can answer the question effectively, who are we? It changes the way we interact with every other circumstance and relationship in our lives. So this is what I'm praying for today, that we would, we would see that clearly, that we would see that because we are image bearers, we are God's image bearers, we are relational and responsible and reliant. We're going to explore what that means in its totality from this text. So first off, what does it mean that we're made in God's image? Just before we talk about the implications of it, what does it mean that we're made in God's image? We heard it read over us, and, and the word for image in Genesis 1 that is used is a word called selim. Can you say that? Selim. There you go. That's your Hebrew lesson for the day. Selim is the word that is used throughout the Old Testament for image. It's very consistently translated idol. The Greek translation of it is icon. And so the idea of this word is like a little statue, like a little idol or some physical representation of another thing. So what God is saying is when he made mankind, he's making them to be his little representation to the whole of the created order of what he's like. So when, when you read in Genesis 1.26, look back at this text with me, what we're reading is about the selim. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God is talking about something distinct in the course of his creative work, different from everything else he has created. And just to, if, if we were reading it in the original language, then the next verse would be, in our mind's eye, it would be in bold and double underlined and in italics, because right after God introduces this idea, that you and I as humanity were made in his selim, his his image, like little statues, he then sets it off with poetry. He immediately bursts into poetry. 
And he uses a very interesting word three times in this one verse of poetry. I promise this whole thing won't be a Hebrew lecture, but let me tell you about one other word, okay? In this verse, he uses one word three times. It's the word bara. There are two words used for creation in Genesis 1. Bara is far more unique. God uses it very sparingly. Asa means to form and to make, and God throughout all of creation is forming and making thing after thing after thing. Bara gets used at three individual moments. When he spoke everything into existence at the very beginning, out of nothing creation was bara. When he made animal kind, the first kind of living creatures he borrowed. And now that he comes to humanity, he's now doing something different all over again. Something distinct from all the other living creatures, from all the created order. But he doesn't, this word that he's used so sparingly, when he comes to his poetic verse, he uses it three times. I think he's trying to make a point. Let me read it to you. Verse 27 says this. So God created, that's borrowed, man in his own image. In the image of God, he borrowed him. Male and female, he borrowed them. This is a, an overly emphatic way of saying, you are unlike anything else in the created order. Two very practical implications that need to be kind of carved out right here as we talk about God's image. Before we talk about how we live this out, how we play out our image, just two things that are true just by virtue of this statement of God having created you different than the way he created everything else. The first is this. You no longer have to wonder about the question, who am I? This is the foundation of who you are made differently and distinctly with immense value and worth to show the world what God is like. And the second implication flowing directly from that that I I want you to feel the weight of is this. You are divinely handcrafted and majestic. You. And incidentally, every human being that you have ever interacted with, no matter their mental capacity, no matter their societal standing, every human being is divinely handcrafted majestic. (laughs) When I was a senior in high school, I had the opportunity to go to Switzerland. I shared this story with with a few of our college students this summer, but I had the opportunity to go to Switzerland with my parents and a, a really amazing uh, trip during my senior year of high school. And I asked, I saw a little flyer for paragliding, and I asked them if I could do that. They said yes. I signed up. We didn't sign my life away. We didn't, we didn't, they didn't know where I was going. It felt very unsafe. They probably should have said no, but these people come by and they're like, you, you want to jump off the mountain? I was like, I do. And they said, get in the car. We're out of here. And we drove off I got on a train that wound around through the Swiss Alps, and then we got out and we hiked to the top of a mountain in the Swiss Alps. And I was standing on the side of this mountain. There were some cows milling around, eating grass on the side of the mountain. And my instructor strapped himself behind me, and we laid a parachute out on the side of the mountain. And then he leaned down in a thick German accent, and he told me to run. (laughs) I was like, okay. And then he said, don't hit the cows. (laughs) Okay, and so we start running down the side of the mountain, 
and the parachute slowly starts to fill up and I was running and then all of a sudden my feet were no longer touching the ground and I was just running and then the, the side of the mountain dropped away and we were thousands of feet up in the air, Swiss Alps running along both sides of this valley and we just started to lilt back and forth. We were going down into Interlaken, Switzerland, which Interlaken, I'm not, I don't speak German, but you might be able to pick it up. It's between the lakes, Interlaken, little town between the lakes. And there was mist coming from the lakes over the town green in Interlaken. And for 18 minutes, I just couldn't catch my breath. I was going, beauty on every side. What this text means is that when you have the opportunity to sit across from a human being and look them in the eyes, it trumps that. More beautiful, more stunning, more valuable, more worthy of your attention and your focus and your awe. When we start to understand what it means to be made in the image of God, it means that there is no one that can be discarded. There is no one that is not worth your time. That we are a people that start to affirm this when we go, oh, when I understand I've been made in the image of God. Listen, that's true of you. You have that sort of immense value and worth and beauty, every one of you. And it means that you're invited to see the sea of humanity around you in the same way. So my question, in light of this beautiful truth that we've been made in the image of God, is how does it play out? What are the natural outworkings of this reality in our lives? The first is this. This text is going gonna, is gonna to make it plain that if we have been made in God's image, if we are God's image bearers, we are profoundly relational creatures. Profoundly relational. It's actually baked into our creation that right after we're made in the image of God, right in the midst of the poetic verse that you just heard, he actually immediately notes the distinction between male and female and the way that they're going to be interdependent upon one another, that no human being can stand in isolation and thrive. In fact, humanity couldn't have propagated itself without interdependence, that God actually hardwired relationship into the way that he made us, which shouldn't be a surprise. We, we noted last week that God is relational within himself. The hints of our Trinitarian theology are present even in this passage as he says, let us make man in our image, that God is relational, and for that reason... Your ability to explore and to experience and to express the image of God is a communal endeavor. It's not something that you experience solo. Let's see it in the text here. It said, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And then he goes on to say later in that verse that he told them to be fruitful and multiply that their ability to experience all that God had intended in their selim required a web of relationship. Let me just make this note for my, for my single friends in the room. This does not mean that outside of a covenant relationship with a, with, with a spouse that you don't fully experience what God has for you. That's not what this is saying. Because Ultimately, what the rest of the scriptures are going to unfold for us is that we're made for a web of meaningful relational connection. Marriage is certainly a gift within that, an expression of that that we see from the start of the story, but that's not the sum total of it. What it means is that we need each other. 
We need meaningful, deep relationship where we tell the truth about ourselves and where we experience deep intimacy. There, we experience the image of God blossoming in what it was intended to be. It is relational endeavor. I can't wait for my first word and prayer of my house church this afternoon. I'm going to be back together with, with some family. I see right down here, like people that I love that feel like family to my wife and my kids and I, like, I'm glad to be back in that setting, telling the truth about ourselves and studying the scriptures. We need those sorts of contexts because we are relational. And now, just before we press on, I need to take a, a brief, somewhat tangential, but critical aside because it's, it's here in this text and we, we, we have to note it. Did you hear that as soon as God creates mankind, that he establishes a binary of sexes? male and female, something that holds true throughout the scriptures, something that is marked by a great deal of confusion and struggle in our cultural moment. I just, I just want to draw attention to it. I, I, I want to make two brief comments. This demands a much longer conversation, but I think it's important for us to, to pay attention to how our anthropology speaks into the cultural moment. One, as Christians thinking about the the challenge around what it means to be male and female in our, current context, in our current context. We need to be a people like Jesus who are full of grace. Someone that's experiencing gender dysphoria is experiencing a psychological experience that is tormenting and real, paralyzing. I long for us to be the sort of people that would lead with our ears, that we would listen and love people and say, tell me what that's like. I can't imagine. And that we would enter their space and care for them, care for people. If that's you in this room right now, if that's something that is churning inside of you, I want you to know this is a safe place to come and name that and to experience an embrace of community, trying to pay attention to and make sense of the challenges of living in our broken world. We need to understand what it is to experience fullness of grace as a people. And we need to experience the the fullness of truth as a people. We need to develop a robust anthropological understanding, affirming what God affirms, that he created male and female on purpose, with intention, as fixed and binary realities, biblically speaking. It actually means something to say man or to say woman in God's lexicon. And we need young families and young parents that will love their kids and not allow cultural pressure to rob them of, of actually equipping their kids to rejoice before God that you've made me as a woman or you've made me as a man. And so what we want to occupy is the space that is full of grace and full of truth, not just allowing the confusion of our current moment to cloud our ability to speak what is present in the scriptures. If you're interested in this topic and would like to go further, I read a phenomenal book this summer that I would highly recommend to you that models the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth and talking about the challenges around gender in our current moment. It's a book called Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. I highly recommend it. If you want to go further on that conversation or if you'd like to talk with me, I'd be, I'd be happy to do so. Okay. You see, as God's image bearers, we are profoundly relational. We are profoundly relational, but that's not all. We are also, we are responsible. We are responsible right on the heels. Each time in this text, God twice says that we're made in his image. 
And then right on the heels, he does the exact same thing right after saying it. He talks about a role that comes as a result of that. And he uses a term called dominion. Dominion is a word that gets used a couple times in this text. And dominion is a royal word. Kings, queens, princes, princesses, they have a dominion. But what he is saying is that because you've been made in my image, you have a dominion where you, you get to exercise responsibility. Your little plot of soil, your web of relationships, the office that you go to, the kids that you're raising, the roommates that you live with, that is your plot of earth that God is saying as he's asaing, right? He's creating and he's shaping and then he creates man and then he turns and he looks at them and he goes, well, exercise dominion. In the same way that I've been brooding over the chaos and bringing order and beauty and relationships such that human flourishing can, can actually emerge, now go do likewise with your little, your little scope, your little territory. Do you hear it in the way that he invites us into radical responsibility? Uh, he, it, let, let's look at it in verse 28. It says this, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Some theologians have called this our vice regency. We are ruling in conjunction with God in the world that submitted to his authority, we then exercise his authority on his behalf in the world, bringing order and beauty out of chaos. Uh, this can be done in a lot of different ways, but it certainly raises the question, I believe. It, it raises the question, where am I currently being irresponsible? Where in your life, in the plot that God has entrusted to you, where are you being irresponsible? Turning a blind eye to chaos that's starting to, to spread. I've got this little shed in my backyard, dirty little secret, I'll let you in on it. Behind the shed is where I just dump stuff. Like when I'm doing yard work or when it's just stuff I don't want to see anymore, it just gets thrown behind the shed. At some point, I'm going to have to deal with the behind the shed situation. It's all overgrown and a total mess. We all kind of have that somewhere in our life, right? Like that relationship we don't want to really look at, I'm going to tuck that one behind the shed. The thing that's happening at work, the mess that's burgeoning and we don't want to stare directly into it. In this text, I believe what God is gently yet firmly saying is, you are royal. You have my character working in you. You've been marked out for grand and glorious things. Turn towards the chaos and confidently step into it and exercise your God-given responsibility. I'm going to embarrass my friend Robert for a moment. I did ask for his permission. Robert's sitting right here. He actually wore the bright colored hat so you could all identify him. Uh, thank you for that, Robert. Um, Robert and I have been friends for years. He's an orthodontist, and we get to spend time about once a month. We spend some early mornings together getting to talk and pray. And uh, I, was, I was inspired thinking about our call to be radically responsible. I was inspired thinking about Robert because in part, what he does every day is, is he leans over people's mouths and he brings order out of chaos. Like he looks at the teeth that are like this and he's like, yeah, I can fix that. And slowly works into beautiful smiles. Like he's bringing order out of chaos here. 
But what I love is the way that the image of God is being displayed in Robert's life and story is because that's not the only way that he's trying to bring order out of chaos. When he talks and shares with me, he's praying and thinking about the assistants that work in his office. He's aware of their story, the financial concerns, the pinch they've had here, the relational challenge that they've got going on, because as they share it with him, he lays aside his work and he pays attention to them. He thinks about the teenagers that are in his chair getting their, their smile fixed. And he, he asks good questions and gets engaged in what's going on in their relationships and their romance. And you should hear him tell the stories about like sticking his face in their FaceTime conversations that they're trying to have while he's working on their mouth. And he just, he's a part of their story because what he realizes is this, when he steps into the world, he has radical responsibility for the territory that God's entrusted to him. He's trying to create a space where if you come into it, you're going to start to taste more of what human flourishing can and should look like. We all have a territory. What would it look like for you to to live into your identity as Selim, a little representation of what God's care would look like in that space? This is one of the direct implications of being made in the image of God. One is that we are relational. We need to prioritize and cultivate healthy, robust, deep relationships. The second is that we are responsible. We can't just let chaos reign. We, with an understanding of our our royalty, our makeup, we actually turn into the chaos and we bring order out of what is unfolding in that space. But lastly, the third note is this. God's image bearers aren't just relational and they aren't just responsible, they are reliant. They are utterly dependent. The dominion that we exercise is a dominion of dependency. We are reliant on God. And I just want us to hear, as we're about to read the last few verses of this text, I want you to hear the the fireworks that go off at the end of this text. This summer on July 4th, we had the opportunity to be on kind of an elevated position near Denver, and we could see fireworks shows going on all over the city. And I love, I love the last two minutes of the fireworks show most, right? Because that's when they're not holding back anymore. They're just like on top of one another. But we got to see like 11 of those all at once, just all across the city. It's a beautiful picture. That in some ways is how God sums up his creative work as he creates all things. And I think if we're not careful, we can read Genesis 1 like, okay, God created everything and then he created us and then everything was very good. Like, we're finally on the scene, so now everything's excellent. And in part, that's true. In part, it is true that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creative work. But I also think it's really important that right on the heels of expressing that he's made us in his image, that he's borrowed us in this poetic and beautiful way, there is a fireworks show, and the fireworks show is of the fact that he is the one that sustains everything. He is the one that holds everything together. Everything that has been made is dependent upon him. And that is why the whole system is very good because he's spoken it into existence and he's gonna provide for it in an ongoing way. And it's easy to miss, but there's one word that gets repeated nine times in the last three verses. And I believe that's the fireworks show. The word is, is very simple. It gets translated either every or all. It's a little Hebrew word that shows up nine times in three verses because God is saying 
everything, 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 everything. I am satisfying and securing and providing for everything. And for that reason, this is worthy of celebration. Let me see if I can show it to you in the text. Look back at verses 29 to 31 with me. It says this. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There is evening and there is morning the sixth day. Do you feel it? He has made everything in his orderly, beautiful, relational, creative, lavish way. And as he comes to the conclusion, what he says is this, and by the way, I'm gonna sustain all of it. It's all dependent upon me. It will all find its fullness and its expression of life and vitality by depending on me, by understanding that I am the one that is feeding and tending to it every day. All of the creatures, all of humanity, they're all dependent on me. If we really understand the nature of being made in the image of God, what we understand is this, is that every breath is grace. You can't make yourself keep doing it. You are dependent utterly and totally for each breath, each meal, each day. And God in his grace from the very beginning is saying, rely on me. Be utterly dependent upon me. Now we're going to continue to study these chapters and a little hint as to what is coming. Mankind has not continued to remain reliant upon God. Our first Father and mother, Adam and Eve, had the word of God. They had the presence of God. They had the provision of God. And they decided they knew better. They listened to the deceptive voice of the serpent. And they bent in on themselves and said, we will seek our own pleasure in our own way. Thank you very much. And that decision and the tens of billions of subsequent decisions that have been made by every human being who has ever plod upon this earth, we have consistently said, thanks, but no thanks. I think I know better. And as a result, God's image has not been destroyed, but it has been maimed. It has been deeply defaced. That our image of God that we bear has been tattered and torn and soiled. Our royalty has been dragged through the dirt as we have said, thanks but no thanks God. And as a result, we consistently find ourselves in places where what was supposed to be marked by relational health is marked by relational tension and brokenness that we just keep stuffing behind the shed in the back. Or the places where we were called to be responsible we hit eject on responsibility because it just feels like too much because we're trying to manage it in our own strength and don't want to rely on God's. And so we go, I can't manage it anymore. And we stuff it behind the shed with all the other mess as it's slowly growing into disorder and chaos. And as we're trying to do it all by our own strength, it's breaking in our fingers. This is the status of being human in a broken world, royal dignified, stunning, and beautiful. 
yet tattered and dragged through the mud and dirt because we thought we knew better. And it's in that context, friends, this is why we, we love the gospel around here. Like we adore Jesus. Because this is the state of affairs, but it's not the end of the story. And so we rehearse time and time again this good news. That Jesus looked into the defacement, the difficulty of humanity heaving under the weight of its own sin and brokenness. And he willingly took on flesh and he walked into the midst of it. And do you know that he did it in the most stunning of ways? He was so relational, marked by compassion and love at every step in such a way, don't you just love that everybody wanted to be close to Jesus? The word that gets used consistently in the Gospels is they thronged about him. It means that they were to the point of crushing him, just trying to reach out and touch him. Children wanted to run into his arms and be swung around. Prostitutes wanted to be at his dinner table. Levites, tax collectors, they were, they were hoping that they would get the invite because they wanted to be close to him because... He was marked by a love and a compassion that looked at every person like they were better than the Swiss Alps. And he, he, he welcomed people in. And then he took responsibility for them. Like deeply, profoundly, in all of their brokenness and their loss and their heartache. He said, I will take responsibility for you. Put it on me. Even to the point where he was driven to the cross, bleeding and dying on behalf of our sin and our brokenness, such responsibility. And in that space, he remained utterly, totally, completely dependent upon the Father. He quoted scripture from the cross, entrusting his soul to his Father. Even in the midst of the heartache and the brokenness, he's, he's quoting from the Psalms. He's praying. He's saying, Father, don't hold it against them. Forgive them, utterly dependent on the Father to the last breath. And in his death, he buried all of our brokenness, all of our tattered humanity. And then he raised again as the first fruits of new life, saying, this is the image of what you can and will be made into as you set your gaze on me, he is, he is so perfectly the little statue, the selim of the Father, that he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so the invitation is for us as a people to an utter dependence and brokenness, set our gaze on Jesus, knowing that as we do, we will be transformed from one degree of glory into the next. Our royalty will be reawakened. We will be the sort of people that engage in the world with compassion and love, creating relational health, taking responsibility while dependent upon him. And people will look at our lives and praise our good works. They will praise our Father in heaven because they see our good works. God's image has been defaced, but it has not been destroyed. Brothers and sisters, you are stunning. You are royalty. Set your gaze on Jesus and experience as his love and grace washes and cleanses you and begins to allow you by his strength to be the sort of people that create healthy, holistic relationships as you take responsibility for yourself and for others. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we did nothing to deserve 
being your image bearers. And in fact, we have done so many things in our lifetime, dragging this beautiful truth through the dirt that you, you would be well within your right to wash your hands, to remove your stamp of beauty and creativity and value and dignity and worth from our lives, but you don't. You don't. You value us. You love us. You've come for us. I pray that for any friend in this room that has just been, believe, been believing the lie that they're not worth anything, that they're not worth other people's time or attention, I pray that all right now by your spirit that they would know their immense value and worth. They are precious in your sight. And I pray, God, that we would be the sort of people that would receive Jesus' grace, that we would confess our sin and know that his blood was shed for us, that we would walk in newness of life and that we would be beautiful representations of you together as a community for your glory and for our joy, we're asking it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.